You're listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students from the University of Alberta interested in raising awareness of the roles that libraries play in society. My name's Jesse. And I'm Ryan, and we'll be your hosts for this half hour of Library Radio. Today, we will be taking a look at the role of libraries in aiding the healing of relationships with Indigenous communities in Canada. Marco Visconti sat down with Dr. Patty Labuquem-Benson, the Director of Native Counseling Services Alberta, and with Michael Dudley, the Indigenous and Urban Services Librarian at the University of Winnipeg, to explore the path to reconciliation and how libraries and librarians can contribute. In his 2003 CBC Massey lecture, The Truth About Stories, First Nations writer Thomas King says, We both knew that stories were medicine, that a story told one way could cure, that the same story told another way could injure. And that leads us to today's interviews. This is Marco Visconti reporting for Shout for Libraries. For this episode, we wanted to explore the connections between Indigenous rights and librarianship to answer the question, how can libraries and librarians aid in the healing of Indigenous communities in Canada? Our journey starts at Edmonton Public Library's Stanley Milner branch. Over the summer, I attended an event that EPL was hosting called Forging Reconciliation Stories, Literature and Aboriginal Peoples. After being led through a smudging ceremony by an Aboriginal elder, the other attendees and I heard a guest lecture by Dr. Patty Labucan Benson, the Director of Native Counseling Services of Alberta. I caught up with Dr. Labucan Benson after her talk to chat about the importance of holding space for Indigenous truth-telling and the transformational power of information. Reconciliation has been a deeply personal journey for me. Reconciling who I am within this larger Canadian social fabric. Um, It's been my own healing journey and I have pushed that to be a healing journey with my organization and I'm interested in being part of our national healing journey. So that's what reconciliation is, about healing our relationships. My name is uh, Patty Labacan Benson. I'm the Director of Research, Training, and Communication at Native Counseling Services of Alberta. I'm a Métis Ukrainian. I grew up on Treaty 6 territory. And I, I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions about um, the nature of storytelling or truth-telling and how that can be a healing process. And uh, my first question deals with sort of the, the barriers to hearing Indigenous testimony and I was wondering like as we move forward with truth and reconciliation what what barriers do you think need to be overcome Um, because as you were saying we're just sort of on the forefront of this discourse you know I don't think there are barriers to truth-telling I think the barriers lie in accepting the truth and one of the things that I talked about tonight is um, how Uh, people of my generation, you know, I'm in my 40s, we grew up learning a very, very different idea of what history is. Um, And some of the things I presented today ran contrary to what I learned as a child. For some of us, we're transformed in that information and it changes our life, uh, who we think we are, who we think our country is. For other people, they reject it and they resist a different history and, and that's a human condition. 
it's something that we all have to kind of uh, fight against that you know if it doesn't line up with what I think is true then it must be wrong my opinion is is somehow elevated and uh, our opinions are just our opinions but when presented with the burden of evidence that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has presented us we need to transform our narrative about our history who we are and what we have to do moving forward I really appreciated what you were saying about expressing humility as we hear these stories. I think especially uh, for me, I'm, I'm not Indigenous, so I, I think a big part of my responsibility is to learn how to bear witness respectfully and with love. So I was wondering if you had any advice on how people in general, but I think specifically non-Indigenous people, can learn to listen with that respect and with that love and that sense of humility. Humility is such an interesting way of being. Um, humility means we have to put aside what we think we know, put aside our judgment, our negativity, and sit as a human being and truly listen and allow the new information to transform us. Um, deep listening requires not only paying attention, but being willing to absolutely change our mind. And it's not a skill, I think, that is uh, highly valued in our society today. It's something that we have to work on. I think it's a society in general. We are not training children, we're not training ourselves to listen, to be reflective, to listen critically yeah. to what we hear in the media. We tend to just, whatever lines up with what we believe to be true, then we get more of that and we reject anything that would give us a contrary opinion. Mm -hmm. And really what humility is, is listening to everything um, that comes to us and, and, and reflecting upon it, being critical of it, and deciding what we're going to take in. I really liked the Thomas King quote you used. So I was wondering, um, how can we ensure that the stories that we tell and that we listen to are healing and not injuring us anymore? Stories that heal are stories that have multiple voice. History from one perspective, from the colonizer's perspective, has been deeply injurious. It has hurt people um, to the core of who they are. Transforming that narrative to have multiple voices, to, to listen to this indigenous truth, to listen to the immigrant truth, to listen to all of those multiple truths of our history, um, that can heal us. That, that's what builds relationships. And do you think that libraries have uh, a unique responsibility in um, participating actively in truth and reconciliation because they're they're government bodies but also educational bodies and there's so much um, violence and there's such a history of pain and violence between the education system in Canada and Indigenous peoples. I think that libraries can be um, bastions of safe reconciliation space. I think they can be deeply rebellious and, and uh, build collections that have these multiple Indigenous voices. They can create spaces where people feel comfortable. They have uh, purposeful community outreach that can build relationships with Indigenous peoples and draw them in. Like the, the structure of the library is set up to do reconciliation, but the people inside it have to be committed to it, right? Right. Yeah. That, that's very true. It all depends on the people who are running the operation. It all depends on the people. After speaking with Dr. Labukan Benson, I was anxious to speak to someone else who could give me an example of what it means to be a librarian dedicated to actively indigenizing their library space. So I contacted Michael Dudley, who's the Indigenous and Urban Services Librarian at the University of Winnipeg, and has held that position since July of 2012. Michael also maintains a blog called The Decolonized Librarian, 
where he writes about his work, his research, and the dilemmas he encounters in trying to incorporate indigenous knowledge systems into a very Western colonial institution. Here's what Michael had to say about being a decolonized librarian. at the University of Winnipeg. Uh, I'm responsible for public services, which includes circulation reference, interlibrary loan and reserves, but I'm also responsible for services to um, Indigenous studies, uh, collection development in that area, history, politics, uh, urban and inner city studies, and also for doing reference outreach to micro-communities on campus. So. I, I get out once a week to the Aboriginal Student Services Center, uh, to the Accessibility Resource Center to work with students with disabilities, as well as to the International Student Center. I, I was directed to your work actually because of uh, your blog that you write, The Decolonized Librarian. So my first question is kind of about that. How did that, that blog start? But my, my role, as I, as I said, started in July of 2012, and the, the title at the time was Indigenous and Urban Services. They had had an Aboriginal services librarian uh, prior <clears throat> to my being there, but, but she had gone to another opportunity. The position had been vacant for quite a while. I, I'm not Indigenous myself, so when I uh, was hired for the role, I realized that I really had to do a lot of, of deep thinking uh, and approach this uh, this position, this role, uh, very thoughtfully, and and that of course involved doing a lot of reading. But I just found blogging to be a very useful uh, method for working through issues, problems, commenting on current events, tying current events to to the literature, and and often I would say, you know, there's this there's this issue, this problem. I don't really know how I feel about it, but I want to be able to to understand it better, so I would just you know go into the blog platform, put in a few links, uh, and just start thinking about it. In the process of writing, of course, you you develop um, an understanding. Could you explain what it means to decolonize? Sure. There's lots of different uh, interpretations about that. Politically speaking, of course, that's something that that nations have gone through in. Um, liberating themselves from from colonial um, governance and oppression, but the first posting I did referred to the work of of a fellow named uh, Marcello Descal, who writes about decolonizing the mind and about how colonizing powers impose epistemic systems on the colonized. You know, a whole ways of of seeing and understanding values, norms, uh, literature, culture, and all of these things get absorbed by the colonized, and it's, it's framed as being, you know, superior to that of the, of the indigenous culture. But it's a process that, that's transactional, because, you know, colonizers themselves have been colonized, their minds have been colonized by the cultures they grew up in. I see the institution of, of the library and the processes of classification, cataloging, ordering, as being a form of, of mind colonization. You know, our, the Library of Congress is a very Anglo-American system of, of organizing knowledge and of describing 
content of literature. And so in our profession, we've got this, this tension between those aspects that we can feel very positive about, about education and about developing uh, an informed society so that people can be informed voters, so encouraging democracy and, and, and all of these things, uh, uh, continuing education and freedom of information. And yet we are within an institutional structure that has inherited a very imperial, uh, Eurocentric, uh, heteronormative, Christian-centric system of thinking that structures everything that we do. It's so pervasive that you know most users probably don't think about it. Many professionals don't really think about it either. So in terms of my thinking about decolonizing is that we need to be aware of these things. We can't radically transform them. We have to work within them. But recognizing these structures and also educating students about them and about alternative information sources that that use other other terminologies. You mentioned you were you working on a current project that sort of was taking to task one at least one aspect of library work that sort of yeah. presents those colonial narratives, right? Mm-hmm. Could you tell me a little bit more about uh, a library matter of genocide? Is that the name of the project? Yeah, that's right. It's um, it's riffing on. Ward Churchill, American historian Ward Churchill's book, uh, A Little Matter of Genocide, Mm. where he talks about how uh, indigenous genocides, and he uses it in the plural, because it was multiple genocides across the continent over 500 years with different actors involved, you know, the the U.S. government, the, the military. Mainstream historians, mainstream genocide studies really marginalizes that history. Uh, it, it, it's very controversial to call those genocides. And, and even sometimes when historians do talk about the reality of the massacres of, of Native North Americans, uh, Churchill says that sometimes it, it's excused, but it's also looked at in terms of America's, uh, and, and, and Noam Chomsky also talks about this, about America's transcendent purpose of being a beacon of freedom and democracy, and it was tragic this happened, but there was this greater teleological good that resulted. And and so the history is marginalized. I was doing a a demonstration for an indigenous studies class of the catalog, and as I often do, I ask for, um, for suggestions. I don't like doing canned presentations, so I said, what topics are you interested in writing about? And I believe the topic of genocide had had come up. So I I threw these in as keywords. And the book um, American Holocaust by David Stannard came up. And And I always say, okay, well, we found a book that looks useful. Let's check out the subject headings. And I was appalled to see in front of the class, mostly indigenous women, that the subject headings were Columbus Christopher Influence, United States Dash Discovery, um, it was just so colonial, so <laughs> um, obviously not describing what this book was about. So I, I went back and I, I ended up blogging about it, and the more I thought about it, the more I looked into it, the more books I discovered that the euphemisms in our catalog were just uh, extraordinary and pervasive, that the residential school system, books on that topic, are Indians of North America-education. Uh, Indians of North America dash government relations for for books that clearly are talking about about genocide and Native American Holocaust. 
So I did a, a systematic study of it, and I've presented at several conferences now, looking at, at these you know, very euphemistic headings. I found 50 books. Okay, I developed a sample of 50 titles. It took a lot of work because there is no actual subject heading for uh, Indians of North America-genocide or genocide-United States. That heading would exist. There's nothing that would have prevented the Library of Congress catalogers from saying genocide-United States, genocide-Canada. But only a small fraction of books have those headings. The vast majority have these very euphemistic things like violence against or crimes against. At, at the moment, I'm, I'm working on turning this into a longer paper uh, with uh, a partner, a collaborator in um, Indigenous Studies, uh, Lorena Fontaine, uh, who's done a lot of work in, in uh, genocide, especially the residential school um, system. But it's been occupying me for, you know, a year and a half now. It's interesting. Classification always seems so straightforward, but it, it really does sort of highlight the, a specific worldview. There's like little worlds contained mm-hmm. in these mm-hmm. systems. So when you're, when you're pointing out these, these issues, do you think it comes from a sense of unwillingness to change or complacency? Because you did kind of mention that may, when you were explaining, explaining decolonization that maybe right. not everyone's uh, aware that they're participating mm-hmm. in these these power dynamics. If we have a a category that it describes genocide, but it's just not mm-hmm. used, and it's mm-hmm. instead we use these euphemistic terms. Right? Is it complacency? Well, I think it's it's more than that. You know, there there's one book in particular that I draw attention to uh, called "The American West and the Nazi East: A Comparative and Interpretive Perspective" um, by Carol Cackle. And the, the thesis is that, that Hitler's Germany, in their um, devastating assault on Eastern Europe uh, and Russia, that Hitler was deliberately emulating what the United States had done in the West with, um, with Native Americans. Uh, and so the processes, the techniques of, of massacre, displacement, colonization, are compared and contrasted, the American West and the Nazi East, all the way through. The subject headings for this are, are fascinating because there's such a dissociation, you know, cognitive dissonance, I guess, that there's a Holocaust in Eastern Europe, but for Indians it's treatment of, that there's genocide in Eastern Europe, but massacres in the West. And, and looking at this, you know, it's tempting to think that there's a deliberate, I don't know, kind of conspiracy, mm-hmm. if you will, to disguise this history, but I think it's it's much more subtle and pervasive that, you know, we're, as, as professionals, you know, the imagine librarians at the Library of Congress, the catalogers, they're part of an imperial culture uh, and culturated in, you know, an education system that disguises, ignores the, the genocide of Native Americans so that, you know, it's something that they don't think about it. They don't have wouldn't have the language to to critique it really the the openness to even admit that it happened and so I I think there there is a complacency probably uh, in terms of taking for granted the existing categories the language that we have and not critiquing them looking looking at a book like the American West and the Nazi East you have to wonder 
what went on when this book was cataloged. I think it's worth noting that like we're talking about complacency is not like just isolated to LIS workers. I think it's oh sure, you know, yeah. all people mm-hmm. belonging to settler populations are implicated mm-hmm. for um, sure. But of, of course, it just sort of subconsciously represents itself in different parts of our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I wanted to I wanted to ask you just kind of about your personal trajectory. So sure. how did you become interested in Indigenous services? Were you always sort of interested in um, Indigenous rights? Well, not specifically. Um, I, I went to the U of A's library school back in 91, 93, I, I don't recall there being anything in the curriculum about you know, indigenous. It was just it was right off the radar. Uh, I worked in the public library system in Edmonton and Calgary. In the late '90s, I ended up going, as I mentioned, back to get another graduate degree in city planning here at the University of Manitoba, and and it was there that I really got introduced to critical theory and the notions of multiple publics. I think I'd gone into public librarianship with with these you know, kind of very simplistic notions about serving the public good. Mm-hmm. It was in, in city planning that we really got into theories of, of diversity and epistemologies and multiple ways of knowing. And uh, one term of that was looking at indigenous planning. That's a requirement in that program, is that every year the students do um, some indigenous based field work. And the year we did it, we looked at, at, at a proposal of a, of a youth center in downtown Winnipeg. So that was my, real, my first foray really into uh, indigenous um, services, knowledge, um, and, and issues. And then, of course, going right into working at the Institute of Urban Studies, which has a long history of working with indigenous stakeholders that uh, I ended up becoming becoming more acquainted with it and and getting over that discomfort as as a white person of what should i say and the discomfort of going into an an all indigenous uh environment um it was it was very it was eye opening it was um you know real, a lot of very positive experiences it, the the city planning degree really gave me a grounding in that and and it was something that i regretted we didn't really get into in library school and we easily could have I did want to ask you if you had any advice that you wanted to give to any young librarians, maybe, who would be interested in thinking more critically, specifically about Indigenous librarianship and how they can serve Indigenous communities. What would you have wanted to know, I guess? (laughs) (laughs) Last year, I reviewed a book, well, actually, a couple of books that I would refer your readers to, Aboriginal and Visible Minority Librarians, Oral Histories from Canada, edited by Deborah Lee and Mahalakshmi Kumaran. Uh, and I, I reviewed this book for uh, the journal Partnership, uh, and I think that that should be required reading uh, for, for all LIS students because uh, it, is, it is multicultural. It does emphasize the Aboriginal authors uh, in the book uh, and their experiences and their pathways into librarianship. And the other one that I reviewed... Uh, for uh, the Capel Journal, Canadian Journal of Academic Librarianship, is Stephen Bale's book, um, The Dialectic of Academic Librarianship. In, in that book, he talks about specifically uh, academic libraries. You have to think about our institutions relationally and historically. They're not just you know, sitting there by themselves uh, in history, um, 
but they're part of, you know, the, it, there's an ideological foundation, there's historical context, there's their relationship with, with other institutions and with governments, uh, and so on. So as professionals, we're, we're, we're in this uh, very complex situation, and then we have a lot of big T truths, as he puts them, in librarianship, you know, things like diversity and, and you know, continuing education and democracy and all these things. And that if we don't think about our institutions critically, then, you know, for example, diversity, he says, uh, that if we're still operating uh, under neoliberal assumptions about, about capitalism and educating the next generation of, of entrepreneurs to go off and, and contribute to a global economy and not thinking critically about you know all of the the injustices uh, inherent in that and the the power imbalances and so on the diversity initiative can't really critique anything they can't uh, address the underlying uh, injustices that require diversity interventions uh, so those are those are two books that I would highly recommend um, another book that I would really recommend and this is kind of general advice is that I feel that I'm a much better librarian than I would have been if I hadn't gotten a graduate degree in urban planning. So having, and I'm not saying you have to go off and get another degree, but read outside of LIS literature, uh, read critical theory from other disciplines. Uh, and one book that I think would be you know, really uh, useful is um, Towards Cosmopolis by Leonie Sandercock. She's an urban planner from Australia, but she's out at uh, University of British Columbia right now. And uh, while it, it looks at the history of, of urban planning as, as a modernist enterprise, you know, that did a great job of planning for white, male, straight, able-bodied people, uh, it excluded so many others. And I think there's a lot of analogies with, between modern urban planning and the modern public library movement. Thank you so much for sharing those resources with us. We love getting book recommendations. <laughs> okay. Well, thank um, you very much. That was Marco Visconti in conversation with Dr. Patty Labucan Benson and Michael Dudley. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR, a show about librarians and the issues that matter to them. And that concludes our episode of Shout for Libraries. You can hear a new episode monthly right here on CJSR. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Patty Labucan Benson and Michael Dudley, for sitting down with us to talk about Indigenous librarianship. And thanks to Bulat Nugmanov, who composed our theme music. Follow us on Twitter at Shout for Libraries and on Facebook to get some recommended readings on Indigenous librarianship, as well as a link to Michael Dudley's blog, The Decolonized Librarian. That concludes our show for this month. For this month's Reader Advisory, Shout for Libraries recommend Thomas King's The Truth About Stories and The Inconvenient Indian. Once again, I'm Ryan. And I'm Jesse. Thanks for tuning in to Shout for Libraries on CJSR. If you want to listen to our past shows, check us out on CJSR's SoundCloud page. We leave you with Navatra by Elisa P. Isaac.
Yeah.